Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I want to, so here's the thing. You see John 1, 1 through 4, John 4, 1 through 42. In the past, I have, because it's such a long passage, not read the passage and instead just interacted with the pieces of it. And then the Holy Spirit really convicted me this week that what God says is more important than anything I'm going to say. <laughs> what an epiphany, right? So I'm going to graciously yield five minutes of my sermon time to God. I, just, I hope that is never played out of context somewhere on the internet. Um, boy, that was a terrible sentence. I want to read this whole passage with you and for you because I think it's important to see the broad sweep of what God is up to in this passage. And then I'm going to interact with just a few pieces of it. So here's the word of God. Now, Jesus... Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you have said that when you, I'm sorry, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. 
You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. There's some, something powerful about just reading and hearing the word of God uninterrupted and seeing the broad sweep of what God says. This is my third time at Harvest preaching from this passage. I first preached it from it in March 2011 when I was doing the 100 Things series, and then I preached again from this passage in January 2015 during the Life-Changing Conversations series on evangelism. But this passage with 42 verses is so rich that I'm going to preach from it a third time, and in each of these three messages, I'm saying totally different things. Not like different things like I've changed my mind, but I'm looking, I'm shining the spotlight on different aspects of this really rich passage. So if you were here since 2011, you're like, oh, Lord, the third time, and you're planning to check email or whatever, your fantasy football draft or something, I I just want you to know there's something here that you haven't heard, at least from me. And I hope that what we can do this morning is, in the past two messages, and if you just go to our website and you search for John 4, those past two messages will come up. And in those messages, I really focused on learning from Jesus, the great evangelist, how he led someone to Christ, to himself, right? 
Imagine Jesus, the evangelist, he's leading people to himself. And I, I focus on the methodologies or the practical aspects of what evangelism looks like. This morning, I don't want to talk about how evangelism works or how we do it. Rather, I want to focus on what kind of heart is necessary for evangelism to take place fruitfully. In other words, sometimes people protest that the reason I don't share my faith is I don't feel trained or equipped. I don't know how to do it. And often in the church, that's where we park ourselves. We focus everything on training. Here's what to say. Here's how to say it. Here's how to address that. Here's an analogy. But really, the great barrier, I believe, to sharing our faith is not as much training and equipping, but that our hearts are in the wrong place so much of the time. So that when we walk around the world and bump and rub shoulders with so many people who don't know Jesus, the way we feel about them, the way we look at them, the things we say to them or focus on rise out of a heart that's really in the wrong place. And so this morning, I want to look entirely at the heart that drives the kind of evangelism that leads people to Jesus and bears fruit. By evangelism, I don't mean salesmanship. I don't mean recruitment. I mean giving people an invitation and a proclamation of good news that is a gift to them, not a burden. And so I want to look at three things that arise out of this passage related to the heart we need to have if we're going to be fruitful in bearing witness for Jesus. And the first is we need to be able to see past our prejudice. We need to see past our prejudice. In the context of this passage, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and it's clear that that the Pharisees are making noise, and they're going to start causing trouble. So Jesus says, you know, I'm not ready to fight that fight here with them. So he's going to move back north to Galilee, where he's from, and he's returning home, basically, geographically speaking. He's returning home to do ministry where he grew up. And the straightest, most direct path from Jerusalem to Galilee is through an area called Samaria. Now, people have taught that he actually, if the better route was around a different way, but he decided he had a divine appointment. He, he didn't go out of his way. This was the most common route, okay? This was. It was the most common route for most Jews. But here's the thing. The same way that New Yorkers and Californians call us the flyover states, they don't really think much of us. They're trying to pass through us as quickly as, we, as they can. They call us flyover states because there's really nothing worth staying or landing for. They fly from one important place to the other important place, and we're just a scenery that passes under the belly of the plane. And the truth is, there's a bit of a prejudice or pejorative spirit there when they call us flyover states. Can we admit that? Right? The New Yorkers and Californians think they're so awesome. We're better than them. <laughs> I'm sorry if you're a Californian, but, you know, you've come to the right place. But when the Jews pass from Jerusalem to Galilee or back the other way, when they passed through Samaria, they did it with their noses pinched, and they moved as quickly as they could. They hated being in that section of the land. And the reason they hated it was because they had very strong prejudicial feelings about the people who lived there. Now, this is not a recent prejudice. This was an ancient prejudice. Nearly 750 years back before Jesus' time, a a very powerful empire called the Assyrians conquered Israel, and they captured the city of Jerusalem. And when they did it, one of their interesting strategies was they took everybody of substance, the educated, the well-to-do, the influential in society, and they, they exiled them back to their homelands, in Assyria, and repopulated the newly conquered land with their own countrymen. 
So the only Jews that were left in Jerusalem were those people not really worth exiling. These were the dregs, they thought, of Jewish society. Those who could not contribute much. And then what happened was, as the Assyrians came to resettle, they, they used some of those folks as servants, but they also began to intermarry with them. And over the, the many years that passed, in that intermarrying and trying to form a new people out of the two separate people, they also developed a new religion that bore little elements of all of the source religions, but had become something like a hybrid thing that was neither one thing or the other, and it was offensive equally to all people who are outside of this region. Because you took our religion and you mixed it with another religion and you've created something that is nonsense. It has no power and it has no truth. When those Jewish exiles returned some 200 years later, they were appalled at what they found, and they looked at the Samaritans as traitors, both racially and spiritually. They saw them as half-breeds, and they saw them as people who had taken this true faith and turned it into something that should never have been. And so they looked down their noses at the Samaritans, and it wasn't just a principled prejudice, it was a deep, deep personal prejudice. They didn't just think these people had done something wrong. They looked at them and said, you are less than us. You are filthy. You're undeserving. You don't have value. We don't like the look of you. And if we can help it, we will avoid you altogether and have as little interaction with you as we can. In fact, when you look at verse 9, there's that parenthetical statement at the end, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That word associate is a Greek word that is also, you can translate it, they don't use together. And really the implication, I I think they're right. Augustine, the the ancient scholar, was one of the first to point this out. He said, that little parenthetical statement really should be read this way. Jews don't use the same dishes that Samaritans have used. That harkens back to a very dark, ugly period of our own nation's history where Two races were clearly segregated. Can you imagine the offense you would feel as an African-American thirsty walking up and realizing that an entire nation had reworked its whole plumbing to exclude you, to distinguish you, to tell, and look, and that's not, that's not all. It's not like two equal drinking fountains either. Look at this. And that's the spirit of the kind of prejudice the kind of racism that was happening between the Jews and the Samaritans. This wasn't just some noble, principled bigotry. It was something much more visceral. And have you noticed, for example, that one of the signs of acceptance and intimacy is when you're willing to share a drinking vessel with someone else? You know, like when, when my good friends or my, my wife, my family members, were at a restaurant, and they reach over to my drink, and they're like, oh, how's it taste? And I, I look at them, and I'm like, how is it? But if a stranger or someone I don't know that well reaches over and goes, oh, your drink is so good. I'm like, that's your drink now. I'm not. And it's not like my, my people are somehow less germy than my not people, right? But the truth is we're willing to share germs with those we've accepted. We don't look at them and say, you're filthy. I couldn't possibly dream of sharing things with you that touched your mouth. I'm not going to touch that to my mouth because you're less than me. That's why this woman is so shocked when Jesus, this Jewish man and clearly a religious leader and someone of substance, asks her for a drink. And isn't it interesting that 
he asks her to serve him. We're so hung up on the fact that we're supposed to do all the serving as Christians. That I know some Christians who are just bent on never being a burden on anyone else. The one thing they fear the most is that they would impose themselves on someone or be a burden to someone else or ever have to ask them for help. Here's the thing. Jesus didn't care if he was serving them or they were serving him. All he cared about was that through that human need, people would connect. It really doesn't matter who's handing the water to whom. What matters is in that transaction, there's a human interaction that matters. One that says, I see you and you see me, and we're going to exchange something meaningful here. And through that touch that you've had with my life, you're going to experience something of the love and the good news of Jesus Christ somehow. That's what really matters. So it's a huge thing for Jesus to look at this woman, and how is she going to give him water? She's going to use the same cup she would have used to drink herself. And he's saying, I want some of that, and she's a little bit appalled. Here's the thing I want to tell you is every one of us in this room has prejudices. Not me. I, I'm so tolerant of all. I'm so open. I, I love everyone. Get over yourself. Every one of us has prejudice in our heart. Okay? Every one of us. And what, what we mean by prejudice is prejudgment. That's really the root of the word itself and the root of the idea is that we have strong feelings before we know a single real substantive thing about someone else. We walk into it, and at the first glance, we already have strong feelings in our hearts about where we stand with those people. Even that phrase, those people, think about that. Who are those people in your heart? Those people who instinctively, right away, you find an aversion in your spirit. You don't know why. Maybe you do know why. (laughs) But for some reason, and maybe it was based on an isolated past experience or a low-level pattern you've seen or something. But the truth is, now that you've seen it, every new person that fits that pattern, you feel the exact same way before you take one second to actually know the truth of them or their story. And I know why that happens for some people, because it's repeated experience after repeated experience. You say, no, I'm closing my heart. They're all like this. They're all like this. Every one of us has prejudices and My aim here is not to name them and shame you over, but just to get you to accept you're not as tolerant and accepting a person as you believe you are. We are all very tolerant and accepting of those who are in our tribe, and we can't stand even the sight of those who are not. Let me just give you an example. How do you feel when you see this picture? Now, you... Now, listen, listen. My aim is not to be political here. But when you see this picture right now in this moment in our country, no one has neutral feelings about this picture. From the first second, you either feel your heart open up or close up. Right? Our hearts have become like sphincters. They just, in, they just instinctively just shut up, close up tight when we're not comfortable with something. There is no middle ground anymore. You see a picture like this, immediately you're like, ah, oh, or Ugh. You feel it? You don't know a single one of those people. You only know the sign they're holding. You're going to spend eternity with some of those people. How about this picture? Now, I'm not pitting one group against the other. There are Christians and non-Christians in both groups. But how do you feel when you see this picture? For some, right away, we're like, yes, I would be marching with them. And others were like, what is wrong with those people? 
I, maybe I'm not going to judge them or exclude them, but I just don't feel any kinship with them. And right away, you've decided in your heart of hearts, in part on principle, but largely on instinct, you feel, and, and that's just the way it is. When you look at these two groups, there are not neutral feelings immediately before you know anything about anyone. Just by their association with a tribe, your heart either opens or closes. Can we acknowledge that? And that's just two groups. I, I toyed around with the idea of spending five minutes just showing you all different kinds of groups. You go, how do you feel about this one? How about this one? And, and maybe have a camera here to monitor. <laughs> <You're>, <sighs> but the truth is, just these two pictures suffice to show that we are all wired this way. And here's why I'm bringing that up. Because that poses a real problem for us as followers of Jesus. Because he has not called us only to bring his love and good news to our own tribe, but to all nations, all people groups. Everyone on earth needs to receive the love of God and to hear the invitation and the good news of God through Jesus Christ, irrespective of which tribe that they belong to. And he has called us indiscriminately to be the bearers of that love and good news without regard to the tribe that we're encountering. So if this is the natural dynamic of our hearts, is to have such prejudice, and yet God calls us to be bearers of love and light to everyone, do you see the tension that is produced? That Jesus had no illusions about what an uncomfortable situation he was getting himself into. He knew that by, by all rights and societal norms, he wasn't supposed to have this encounter with the Samaritan woman. Do you remember how, it's interesting, um, the chapter back, Nicodemus, he was a, a man of high rank in society. In fact, most people in that day would have agreed that for Nicodemus and Jesus to associate would have elevated Jesus' reputation. That's why Nicodemus, fearing the, the um, defilement of his reputation by being seen with Jesus, slinks in at night and goes, uh, listen, I'm a little curious, I just don't want people to know because I don't want to risk my reputation being seen with you yet until I've made up my mind about you. This woman could defile Jesus' reputation just by her ethnicity, but also further by her reputation in the town. By the way, not just ethnicity, gender too. Boy, the people of that day did not have a high view of women. I can tell you that. I, I did so much research for this message, and the stuff I dug up was so... Di- I just wanted to read some of it for you, just so you could see that outrage and shock and disgusting words and ideas are not just from today. They have always existed. So why wasn't Jesus afraid to associate with this woman? Why is he asking for a cup of water? How come he doesn't feel any of the weight and the danger of this encounter that others in his position would have felt? I think it's because he knew that rather than this woman's uncleanness defiling him, his cleanness would redeem her. You know, we so often have this debate if we're parents about, oh, should we put our kids in private school, Christian school? or not? And the, the primary argument is, and I'm not judging you if you've sent your kids to private school or Christian school, but the primary argument is, oh, Lord, we've got to protect our kids. We're always worried about protecting our kids, protect, pulling them away, cocooning them, sheltering them, because this world is so full of danger and dirt. 
And yet, then they get to a certain age, you go, now get out there and lead these people to Christ. And how do you do that? How do you teach them that the world is a threat to you, and then later, once, one day, just go, they're your mission field? You can't do that to a human being. You can't teach them to fear the world, and then later call them to love the world. Now, I'm not saying there's no dangers that we should be indiscriminate and sloppy as parents. There are things our kids have to be protected from and have explained to them in this world. And each of us probably has a different set of things on that list of stuff from which we have to protect our children. Ideas, practices, images. But I think it would be so honoring to God if instead of saying we have to protect ourselves from the defilement of the world, we would realize that we are carriers of the greatest cleansing solvent on earth. The blood of Jesus flows over us. The living God lives in us. Wherever we go in society, the greater risk is not that we will be defiled by the world, but that the world might be redeemed through our Savior and through our witness. What if that was the hopeful attitude and posture of our hearts, is we stop worrying about how the world might touch us and started dreaming about how we might touch the world, because the power that lives in us is far greater than the power that lives in the world. Amen? Amen. What if we stop worrying about our reputations, what people would think about if they saw us marching in that event, or walking with those people, or hanging out with them, and said, realize that every person, and I'm not just talking about the people on the right, the people on the left are in need of such compassion today as well. And I don't mean the political left and right. If you're not looking, look at the slide, okay? Both camps are in need of the gospel. And we're called to both. And if our prejudice keeps us from wanting to interact, if we say, you know what, you deserve what's coming to you, uh, you go ahead and believe what you, your foul beliefs are. I'm just going to minister to my tribe and to those I love. I think our Savior is going to have a real heartache over that. Let's stop being so worried about the world touching us and start dreaming more about us touching the world. Here's a second posture of the heart that will bring the gospel to the world. And that is we need to learn to see beneath the surface. You know, when we look at the world, and think about high school, what a complete caricature of this dynamic high school is, because high schools are organized by tribes. It was much more pronounced back in the 80s when I was in high school. Do you remember the 80s? Like, today the tolerance language has taken such deep root that it's not fashionable to talk like this outwardly, publicly, but still people do it privately. But back when I was in high school, it was almost like there was an adult in the room saying, you can't sit at this table. This is for the jocks, and this is for the cheerleaders. That's for the burnouts. That's for the goths. (laughs) This is for the drama people. And it was like, we're just organized that way. You don't get to hang out here. You're in the wrong tribe. Go over there by your people. And yet that whole system is organized based on really shallow surface things. There is so much you could observe about a person without knowing anything real about them. I could do it right now. I could divide this room by gender, by ethnicity, by morphology, even by by inferred income levels, 
health levels, awakened, awakeness levels. I mean, some of you are already like, good Lord, this is never going to end. There's so many ways to observe surface things about people. And most of us stop there and say, oh, I got you figured out. I, I, I put you in the right category in my mind. Next. And the truth is we think we know people and we know things when in fact we don't really. There's an interesting thing that happens in this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. In that encounter, all the discomfort arises from the externalities. He's a Jewish man. She's a Samaritan woman. He looks like he's somebody with a crew, an entourage, that he can command to go into town and do a grocery run. She's a woman who has snuck to the well in the heat of noon because she doesn't want to be seen, and she doesn't want to run into the other people in town. And all those externalities define the situation, and yet there's something else happening that only Jesus seems to see. There's this really interesting part of this encounter where just this woman's like, hot diggity dog, give me this living water. And what she says is interesting. She says, because I don't want to have to come back here to draw water. And that word here is a very interesting word in the Greek. It's a word that only occurs twice in the Gospel of John in this passage. And it may be significant, it may be John's way of saying, here is not just a physical, geographical location, but here is a situation. I am so tired of being that lady in town. I'm so tired of having to sneak here at noon by myself because I can't stand the whispers and the stares, the judgment of others. I'm tired of being here. And I would love to not have to come back here all the time. I would love water that satisfies and freedom from having to be here over and over. And so at that moment, as she's ready for it, Jesus does a weird thing. He shifts gears all of a sudden and goes, that's great. Why don't you go and get your husband? Here's the thing. She's like, oh, that's touchy for me. Why would he go there? I'm like, dude, don't sell after the clothes, okay? I mean, you got it here. Just let's wrap it up. Give me a receipt. But he goes, no, go get your husband. And he knows the truth about her story the whole time. He knows everything about her. And so she says to him something very interesting. All she says to him is, I have no husband. Now, do you know that there is a way to say something that is technically true but not honest? Some of us are experts at doing this. That's true, but it's not honest. And this is why with the people we love most, we get into such stalemate arguments. Because you you go, what? Is it not true? What I just said, is it not true? In a court of law, I suppose so, but you're betraying the reality of our relationship. You know that's technically true, but it's not really honest about what's going on between us. I just want to give you that little... that that. This one's free. Just take that home. It has nothing to do with evangelism. It has everything to do with family and friendship and marriage. But that might be why you're stuck, is you do this a lot. And what Jesus then does is he goes, oh, don't worry. It's not like you're telling me anything I didn't know. Here's your real story. You're right. You don't have a husband. You had four. Nobody on earth gives a trophy. Nobody says, that's awesome. How'd you do that? That is universally regarded as, oh, I'm sorry. Four times it didn't work for you. And now you've given up on marriage, but not necessarily on men. And the man you're with, you didn't even bother to marry. Something is going on in your life. And so what he says at the end, I love this. He goes, what you have said is true. He's saying, I hear you. I see you. But listen, 
It's true, but it's not honest. And I'm here to give you some honesty. Not in a judgmental, shaming way, but to tell you the truth. I want you to know something about you that you can't even know about yourself. Here's another way of putting it. Before we learn to lie to other people, we have become experts first at learning to lie to ourselves. And some of you need to sit with that sentence for a week in front of God. Before you have learned to lie to other people, you have learned first to lie very often and very consistently to yourself. That's why the, the lack of honesty flows off your tongue in such a rehearsed way. You, This is my story. I'm sticking with it. I've said it for years. It's the truth. When, in fact, it's only part of the truth. It's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so what he does is he pokes his finger into this woman's deepest life-defining wound, not to shame her, but to say, do you realize that what has driven your whole life and all the failures and hurts is a deep and desperate, unsatisfiable thirst, and everywhere you've gone to try to quench it, it just, you've come up short. Now, the fact that she's shacking up with another man right now tells us that the thirst is still there, but she's given up on the water that she's been drawing from. I give up on marriage. I still need a man, or so she thinks. But something is not working in her life. And she's created a narrative for herself to explain all of it. But Jesus is saying the real story is not the dynamics of marriage or the peculiarities of four past men. It's not even a story about your personality. You're not cursed. You don't have the opposite of the Midas touch. It's not that every relationship you enter is bound to end. Something else is happening. You are looking for men to save you from a thirst that only I can deliver you from. The words of Lionel Richie, she's been looking for love in all the wrong places. I've always wanted to quote Lionel Richie. I love his music. He wanted to show her that her past choices and shame don't completely define who she is. There is more to her story than what the townsfolk see in her. That's related to prejudice, but it runs deeper because there are people we're not prejudiced against, but with whom we still have this kind of surface-level relationship. I got you all figured out. I know why you do what you do. We sometimes do that to the people in our own family. We don't let them out of the box we put them in. You hurt me twice, three times. You're always like this. I'm never letting you out. Everything you do from now on is going to fuel my, my verdict already. It's just new evidence for the conclusion I've already drawn. You're always like this. And the person's like, I guess I'll have to be because there's no room to be different here. I'll never get to change with you. You've already sentenced and hung me. <laughs> Why try to be different? Do you know so many kids become the worst version of themselves because before their parents ever say it out loud, the kids hear that you've given up on me. I'll never change. So what's the point of trying? That's another one you got to, some of you sit with for a week before Jesus. I love this scene. Just then as the woman's like, oh my God, this man knows everything. And yet he's still talking to me. What kind of man is this? He knows that I am the shadiest lady in this town, and yet he's sitting right here. He's hanging with me. 
And the thing is, he's always known. It wasn't like I fooled him. He knew from the minute he laid eyes on me, the truth of me. And he still was so kind, courteous towards me. He conferred dignity in the way that he talked to me. How is this possible? And in just that moment, as she's tender and raw, the disciples come back from their food run. I imagine them with two big bags of Chick-fil-A. They're just like, all right, Lord. Man, these Samaritans don't know how to run a fast food joint, I'll tell you what. And then they put the bag down. Oh, wait, what's up? Who is, what is Jesus? You're so innocent, which is code for you're so stupid. You can't be talking to her. Have, do you have any idea what? Good Lord. Do you ever feel that way about some people? They're just so smart but not wise, you know, and they're like, what are you doing? You, this is such a compromising position. And it was. On top of that, as they approach, I love what it says, nobody had the guts to voice what they were all thinking. What do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? What's really going on here? And then as they approach, it says that she dropped her water jar, just left it there. I love the picture Heath drew during the 100 Things series. It was just a water jar spilled over in a well in the background. And a woman's foot going like this. And it's like, that's what they walk into is they see this woman talking to Jesus. And then as they approach, she runs for town. In fairness to them, what would that look like to you? If you came upon me in a little private grove in a park, and I was talking to a woman who is not Jeannie, and she was clearly emotional, and then as you approach, she saw and she dropped her purse and ran off, you'd be like, something, uh-uh, no. I got to call Chris and Ed and Frank and Jared and go, something's not right here. Wouldn't you? And I hope you would. I really do. Even if I'm cleared, I hope you would at least, you know, but that's another story. In fairness to them, they saw a very obvious situation and they saw what they expected to see and they saw what they were trained to see. I want you to look at something. Just read that. Yeah, that's right. Jeannie showed me this driving in the car yesterday, and it got me. I was like, I, I almost had a problem. I'm like, what? And I read it three times, going, what's wrong with the first line? And then I go, oh, oh. Now, how many of you have seen this before? Some of you? Okay, so a few of you have been, have been inoculated, but most of us, I just want to see a show. How many of you did read the first line wrong the first time? Yeah, that's almost all of us. That's because reading is a good example of the way we read people, too. We read words and people the same way. We see just glances. We don't actually look at it. We glance at it. And then the brain and our old habits, muscle memory, takes over. And we go, I can finish that sentence. Nobody read, read what I have told you that you read the first line wrong. I'm like, I don't get it. Everyone read what if I, because that's what you're supposed to see. And the weird thing about it is the first time I saw this, I actually saw it flipped around. I got momentarily dyslexic. And then I go, oh, wait, no, no, it is flipped around. We do this to people a lot. Oh, okay, I got you, buddy. Right away when I, you know, when I meet somebody, I, it's my instinct to try to figure out who are you. All of us do this. Bias affects what we see when we look at a person. And often we stop at the surface and we have no idea what's really happening under that exterior. Under a sad and broken exterior may be a person with the heart of a lion. 
under an aggressive, powerful exterior, maybe someone deeply broken and insecure. We don't know the truth about people just by looking at a glance. This meaningful, life-changing encounter happened because Jesus showed this woman what he saw when he looked at her. And it was different than everything everyone else showed her. All they ever showed her was, this is what you look like on the outside. He said, woman, this is who you are on the inside. And I can do something for you. I can do something about that deeper thing, which has defined your whole life. And the difference was the love of Jesus. If your first instinct is to judge, to lecture, to dismiss, I think Jesus wants you to examine your heart and turn it back over to him. Because our first instinct as his followers should be to love. I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to move forward and finish the last observation. And that is to see beyond the barriers. I've come to realize that The reason most of us don't share our faith is because there are some very understandable barriers in our way. Things we say is like, I can't because, and I I listed something like 10 common barriers. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you 10. I'm just going to talk about two of them that are especially relevant to this passage. But I think there are a lot of reasons we give for why I can't do it why I'm not the one, why I can't hear or in this place or with these people share my faith. Here's one that's very common. They're not interested. I remember feeling that as a youth group student. My youth pastor, he's like, you got to go tell them about Jesus in the cafeteria. I'm like, nobody in my cafeteria wants to hear about Jesus, dude. I don't know what high school you went to, but ain't one person in my high school been like, when is someone going to talk to me about Jesus during lunch? Not one. How about high school students today? Any of you guys are like, yeah, I'm sure there's a divine appointment waiting for me tomorrow in this cafeteria. I'm just going to walk right up to that one table of people I never sit with and go, mm, do, you, do you know Jesus? And the reason we don't want to do it is like, they're going to laugh us out of the place. What? And we see it because they look so happy or they look so sad, but either way, they don't look like Jesus is what they want. They want something else. Jesus says, don't you guys have this saying, still four months until harvest? It's not like specifically that saying, four months. You could take the four months and put an underline there and just go, however long it remains, the point is almost harvest time. Yep, that thing we're all waiting for, that thing that's always in the future that we labor for, anticipate, have no power to rush along. It's coming one day. Yep. He goes, listen, you're so used to waiting for the harvest. Don't you realize it's time now? People are ready right now. They're more ready than you think. You see an immature, freshly sown field. I see them white unto harvest. See, when you glance at the world, you see only the surface and it looks like a world that is disinterested at best and and aggressively against the gospel at the worst. That's not what Jesus sees, and it's not what he wants us to see. So he tells his disciples the same thing he's telling us. Open your eyes and actually look. We think that people don't care, but the truth is people are ready to hear some good news for a change. 
They're ready to hear something that causes their hearts to stop for a second. To feel encouraged, uplifted, cared for, loved. Something that produces hope in them. And often when we stay silent because they're not interested, we're really saying more about our faith or unbelief than theirs, aren't we? I think that the people of this world, especially today, are more ready than ever. And don't you love the contrast between the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus, John chapter 3, and then John chapter 4? Back-to-back encounters. One is the highest-ranking male member of his society. The other is the lowest-ranking female member of her society. And Jesus looks at both. One is too put together. The other one is too too much of a mess. And what he sees in both of them is the same thing. You both need me, and there's no hope for either of you without me. You can easily conclude that that person is too broken. They're not looking for platitudes. They're not looking for some words about how Jesus loves you, and he can... They want some real answers for their real pain. Jesus is a real answer for real pain. How can we take our Savior and reduce him to a platitude and say, no, what they really need is human love. Your human love is literally worthless compared to the love of Jesus. Because I guarantee you at some point you'll get sick of it, you'll get tired, you'll grow jaded, you'll grow defeated. Your love is not infinite. It is not eternal. The love of Jesus is. And when you see people are so broken, you think they're not interested in the gospel. They want something real. Jesus and the gospel are the most real thing that human beings can be offered. When you see someone so put together, you're like, they have everything they need. They don't. They have everything they thought they needed, but they don't have the one thing they most truly need. I'm preaching too hard. I'm going to run out of time. Let me, let me give you another one. <laughs> there's not enough time. Boy, do I feel that every Sunday. You're like, there's too much time. I feel this every Sunday. I wish I could sit with you for a whole day and open the word of God to you. We've all been there. I've flown nearly a million miles in my life. That's a lot of hours sitting next to a lot of strangers, feeling this huge pressure. You're a pastor. Share the gospel with that guy. I'm like, oh. <laughs> on the flight out, I'm like, I still have to finish my messages and, you know, think about where I'm going. And on the flight back, I'm like, I'm so wasted, man. I just, I can't. Not tired, not drunk, okay? I'm just, I just, I'm so beat. The last thing I'm looking for is chit-chat right now. I and yet I feel it. Have you all been there? You're in an encounter that lasts more than five seconds. You're like, I feel like I should something here. I just had it coming back from Hilton Head. We hired an Uber, and we had a 35-minute drive home, and I'm like, I really should talk to this guy. His name is Bardo. He lives in Elmwood Park. I really have been praying for him because I feel so guilty about the way I talk with him because I just chit-chatted and made small. I wasn't ready. I was so tired. And here's the other thing about it is I thought, what can you really accomplish? In 35 minutes. Can a life really turn around in 35 minutes? Pragmatists out there, can I get an amen? You're not going to talk. Somebody who's been walking far from God, they're not going to be like, oh, 35 minutes, I'm ready to hand over my whole life to Jesus right now in this car ride. What a miracle. And we think in our unbelief that's impossible. That's because we think that that 35-minute conversation is the only thing going on. Whenever we encounter someone, we're only catching a slice of the moments of their life. What we don't see is everything God has been doing leading up to that moment with you. 
I love what Jesus teaches his disciples about reapers and sowers. He said there are those who reap and there are those who sow. And it's not unfair. They both have to work together so that in the end, everyone rejoices together. And what that tells me is that for every person who comes to to Jesus, someone before the evangelist, some situation, some person has been sent by God repeatedly to soften their hearts, to awaken in them the need for saving so that when they finally hear about the invitation of the Savior, something in that moment clicks supernaturally. What I have to really remind myself on a regular basis is that person I'm sitting next to, it's not just this one conversation. It could be the conversation for them, the one that every moment before they ever met me was leading up to, and I might write the last line of a song that God has been writing in their life for a very long time. I'll end with a story. I remember preaching the East Coast. And, you know, after the sermon is done and the praise team is leading and the pastor said, would you just lead them in prayer? And so I'm looking around the room and I usually just ask the Lord, direct me to somebody that I need to pray for, somebody I need to sit with for a while. And I saw this one guy in a leather, back back in those days, people wore leather jackets. And uh, this guy's in a leather jacket. He's sitting in the back and he's looking really hard. Have you seen these guys who are like, don't anyone come near me. I don't even want to be here. And of course, that's the guy God goes, him. I'm like, how about that girl who's like, oh, Lord, I just thank you. I'm like, can I just pray for her and just move on? But I, I'm sent to that guy. And so I walk up to him. And I just, he's looking right. And you know, most people, they, when they see the pastor approach, they go, oh. And they, this guy's just like this. He goes, so uncomfortable. So I'm like, can I pray for you? He goes, whatever, man. So I put my hands on his shoulder. And I just felt this overwhelming need to say these words to him. I said, you know, God loves you. And there's nothing that he can't forgive. I don't know if you've ever prayed for somebody with your hand on them. But there's a moment when you feel the shaking. Something's happening. This guy just started breaking down. I'm like, what? All I said was God loves you and there's nothing he can't forgive. And after he was done crying, 30 minutes later, he unfolds his story. There's this person in my life who betrayed me, and my hate for this person has grown so much. And some friends told me about this retreat. I was on my way to murder someone Friday. I had the gun in my glove box. My full intent was to kill this person and then take whatever consequences come. My hatred for them was at such a height, I had to end them. And then that would be the end of me. And on the way to that person's house, I had this fleeting image of my mom, who has now passed away. She prayed so faithfully for me. And I thought, what I'm about to do would horrify my mom. And it was that little image. A mom who had spent years on her knees crying out to God for her son, only for him to be at a moment in his adulthood where he was ready to murder someone. But that mother, that faithful mother who God raised up, It was her face, her memory, her honor, which pulled him aside and said, you know, I'm going to just go to that stupid retreat. If nothing else, just so I don't kill someone and spend the rest of my life rotting in jail. That's how I came to this retreat. And then you preached. And then you said those stupid words and God unraveled me in a moment. He just unraveled me in a moment. Everything that I was feeling like a knot coming undone. I asked him years ago if I could share his story in the future. 
He said, you have to share the story. Because this is the story of Jesus. That's the most dramatic example I've ever had. It's not like I pray for people who are going to murder someone two days before all the time. But that will stay with me forever. Because I thought, what if I had not gone to him? What if I thought, really, after a sermon at a retreat, I'll never see this man again? What can I accomplish in a five-minute engagement? That was the engagement that God used to change his life forever. And it was not me, not one bit. I was the last note in the song. That's all I was. God is at work in people's lives. You may not realize it, but even the person who's defiant, the person you're lecturing, yelling at, judging, God has been at work. And if we will get rid of our prejudices and see the story in the heart beneath what we see on the shallow surface, if we'll realize that many of them are more ready than we could ever imagine, that maybe by just being faithful in this moment, it could end up being the most important moment of their whole journey to that point. What can God do in five minutes? I don't know, but I know what God can do in a lifetime and what he could wrap up in five minutes. That's the faith and the heart with which we must approach our world and bring the gospel. I want to say one last word. We're a little over our time, but one last word is this. If you find even at the end of all this, there's still a coldness in your heart about the gospel. There's this great saying that I heard growing up You cannot give away what you don't possess. If every time you hear about evangelism, your heart is left cold, then your first response to Jesus is not, help me share my faith. It's, help me respond to you the way this woman did that day. And that may be exactly what God wants to do in your life this morning. Whether it's a recommitment to have the right heart and to bring the love and message of Jesus to the world, or to respond to that message ourselves, I'm going to invite us just for a minute to close our eyes and pray. I'm going to ask you in the silence of just this next 60 seconds, respond to Jesus in your own heart in your own words and then we'll sing a song thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church if you would like more information or have any questions or comments check out our website at harvest-community.org thanks for listening